Um, all right, hi everybody, let's get started. Uh, so welcome to this session on uh, energy for the people, the technical and political potentials of grid transformation. My name is Zach Zill, I am uh, involved with a group called Science for the People here in New York City. Um, I'm really excited to have this, uh, th these panelists here today because I think this is a topic that I think about a lot um, due to my own activism and work. Um, I also think it's a topic that is um, fairly under-discussed, especially on, on the left. Um, so before we get into the panelists, um, we just want to do some introductory stuff and um, once we get that out of the way, um, we'll, we'll uh, turn it over to our four great panelists and then we'll have um, time at the end for open discussion. Um, so uh, Jamie is going to be our, my co-moderator today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi everyone. My name is Jamie Bemis and I organize with Science for the People. Um, I'm particularly passionate about the climate change organizing our group has been doing, um, particularly around the Green New Deal. I think it's a really dynamic and inspirational time in our country right now, and I'm um, really excited to be a part of that. Um, and from uh, the 9 to 5 during the week, I work in energy efficiency and renewable energy. So I'm um, really passionate about these topics and looking forward to a great discussion. All right. Um, so uh, in addition to Science for the People, we also have folks on the panel today <coughs> who are from uh, the DSA Eco-Socialist uh, Organizing Group, as well as Trade Unions for Energy Democracy. Um, we're really pleased that you guys joined us and, and to be um, organizing in collaboration with those groups. Um, before we get started, I just want to do a quick land acknowledgement, um, which is to acknowledge that we're on the traditional territory of the Lenape people, who are indigenous North American people that lived in this area before European colonization. Um, and I think it can be hard sometimes to recognize given the incredibly built out nature of New York City, but um, we all benefit, in my opinion, from the land that we live on. Um, and I just think it's worth acknowledging that this land is occupied and unceded um, from the Lenape people and that there are indigenous people who still live in this area. Um, and I hope that uh, we can all consider our place in the history of colonization and, and the undoing of that legacy. Um, so. I'll, I'll give quick bios for the panelists um, before Jamie and I have a few kind of framing remarks for the panel itself. Um, so first, our first speaker today will be Ashley Dawson. Uh, Ashley is a professor of English at the Graduate Center of CUNY and the College of Staten Island. He's the author of two recent books on topics relating to environmental humanities. Uh, the first is called Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change, published by Verso. Uh, the other is called Extinction, A Radical History, published by OR Books. Uh, he's also the author of six previous books on topics such as global social justice movements and anti-imperialism. Uh, and he's a longtime member of the Social Text Collective, Collective and the founder of the CUNY Climate Action Lab. Um, our second speaker today will be Leah Serenian. Leah is an urban planner representing DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group here in New York City. Um, Leah is also a member of Science for the People who's been helping to lead the organizing of our People's Green New Deal campaign. <clears throat> After Leah will be Josh Karpoff. Josh is also an activist with Science for the People NYC. Uh, he lives in Westchester County. He is a former electrical designer for the state of New York. 
Uh, he currently works as an electronics engineer for the entertainment industry, dealing with uh, Broadway shows, and is a proud member of IATSE, Local 1 NYC Stagehands Union. Um, and Josh is also a captain of his local volunteer fire department, and he has received countless hours of specialized trainings on how to handle Con Ed utility emergencies, uh, and he handles dozens of utility emergency calls every year. Uh, finally, Irene Hongping Chen. Uh, Irene's childhood dream was to be a farmer, uh, but somehow she ended up in New York City. Uh, so she taught public high school science and she worked with the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance and with UPROSE on environmental justice issues. Uh, Irene managed to sneak out of New York for a season to farm on a vegetable farm in the Hudson Valley before becoming an organizer with the Chinese Staff and Workers Association on the anti-displacement campaign in the Lower East Side and Chinatown. Uh, and Irene now works for the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies and with trade unions uh, for energy democracy. And this is a point very close to my own heart. Irene also takes care of two to four feral cats, um, despite her cat allergies. So, um, yeah, I guess I just want to say thanks to all of you guys for, for being here and for participating in this panel. Um, at, uh, you know, as we all heard from those uh, short bios, um, one of the things that's for me is very exciting about this panel is that you all um, not only have bring a lot of uh, intellectual expertise uh, to this topic, but you all have roots in organizing and activism. Um, and I think that that is a, a critical, um, a critical sort of overlap there that um, that will help us, you know, think about and and not just think but figure out how to act uh, on this topic. Um, and, you know, obviously this is a panel that's coming at a time when the, this issue of the Green New Deal has vaulted into um, national and, and in some cases international prominence, uh, discussions about how to move off of a fossil fuel based energy system um, have reached a new pitch. Um, for myself, that's been an incredibly exciting uh, development because rather than um, just having sort of negative conversations and negative uh, actions focused on you know the things that we don't want so like fighting against pipelines fighting against new fossil fuel infrastructure um, fighting to get you know universities or other large institutions to divest their money from uh, polluting corporate uh, polluting corporations um, we're now having a positive conversation about the kind of future we want to to see and we want to fight for um, and imagining what uh, uh, um, you know, a sort of near-term reform vision could look like uh, to address uh, most critically issue of climate change, but also how to do that in a way that intersects with racial justice and economic justice and indigenous justice. Um, and for me, that's um, incredibly ex exciting. Um, despite our, our climate-denying um, president and his administration, um, there have also been a sort of raft of new developments in um, especially in kind of liberal official climate and energy policy so there have been recent announcements by states like New York and California that they are pledging to move their um, energy systems to 100% clean energy over the next 20 to 30 years there's legislation right now in front of the city council in New York City um, that would mandate uh, emissions reductions from large buildings in this city, um, which would be the first legislation of its kind to pass in the, in the U.S. if it passes. 
Um, and you know, internationally, there have been other similar developments. So for example, the Norwegian government announced just this week that it would um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, cease new exploration for um, oil and gas, um, which is a, a fairly major step considering that the oil and gas is a, a major component of the Norwegian economy. Um, and so I think that we have a challenge, we have a number of challenges on our hand uh, as the left, which is how do we understand those developments um, which are happening still within a kind of market-based capitalist framework? Um, how do we understand you know, the, the uh, liberal policymakers who seem to be moving to address climate change, although I think, um, you know, in my opinion, not with the sort of urgency and kind of radical vision that I would like to see? Um, how do we understand and how do we fight for a Green New Deal that, um, that actually maintains some of the radical promise that are, that's at the heart of the proposal that was put forward by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Um, how do we take advantage of the new political opportunities that are offered um, in this moment of, of what seems to be a global political realignment? Um, an overdue awakening of a, a mass climate justice movement with you know, students, um, especially in Western Europe, walking out of school every Friday to protest with um, uh, you know, DSA, 2ED, with a lot of other organizations taking exciting steps to challenge the um, private for-profit uh, electrical utilities in this country. Um, and I, would, I guess I would just suggest that in addition to trying to understand those issues and understanding them in a way that also puts um, issues like migrant justice and indigenous justice and racial justice at the center, um, I think there are other sort of major technical questions that the left has um, often sort of dismissed in the past. And I think that the left has not done so out of kind of uh, ignorance or ill will. I think that our energy systems are intentionally obscured uh, from our own control and understanding. Um, it is a major sort of point of, um, you know, where te technocracy, technocratic uh, uh, um, implementation and, and management is supposed to sort of reign supreme, where, you know, ordinary people are never able to, are, are not supposed to really be able to understand you know, where the electrons come from that power our cell phones or that power our uh, TVs or our heat or our whatever it is, um, despite the fact that those things are so deeply ingrained in our, uh, in our everyday lives, like literally every minute of our lives in a place like New York City um, are in some way governed by the energy systems that, that we have today. Um, and so I think that we have a, a real challenge as a left to actually understand some of the technical issues better um, in terms of how those, those energy systems are um, owned and managed and controlled. Um, and um, I think we have to move beyond the, uh, the correct arguments that you know, capitalism, I think, is, is unable to deal with the climate crisis um, on the scale and on, in the, in the, um, with the rapidity that we need to address the, the crisis. Um, but I think the left has a lot of work to do um, to, to grasp uh, what in the short term we can fight for as far as remaking our energy systems and also uh, a sort of longer term radically transformative vision of those energy systems. So um, I guess that's, uh, I'll just leave it at that um, for now. Jamie, do you want to say anything or add anything to that? I think I'll just touch on the logistics of our talk a little bit. Um, 
So we're going to have four speakers, as you know. And the way this is going to work is we're going to do two speakers, and then we'll have a quick pause for about five minutes so that folks can take a moment to digest, stretch if you need to, and chat with your neighbor about what you're hearing and what resonates, and just have a chance to um, start to reflect a little bit. And then we'll have our uh, next two speakers, and then after that we're going to have a moderated, moderated discussion. So Zach and I have a few prepared questions, but we'll also have time for a few audience questions as well. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is just that um, this panel is was conceived of as part of uh, a larger campaign that Science for the People is kicking off this month called the we're calling it the People's Green New Deal campaign. Um, and you know we've been very much inspired by the discussions of the Green New Deal, um, and so we're launching this year-long campaign with um, several goals. One of which is to build new collaborations and alliances among climate justice organizers. Uh, the labor movement, scientists, engineers, and, and technical workers. Um, we have a goal of getting thousands of North American scientists on record as pledging to support the Green New Deal and to lend their technical expertise in the service of social movements and struggles for a just transition. Um, and in, in doing that, we are hoping to hold more events like this one over the next year uh, in North America and beyond on topics related to the many specific overlapping social, economic, and technical challenges presented by, um, by the Green New Deal. Um, and we're imagining these events as sort of testimony gathering uh, events. Um, in contrast to the way testimony is, is gathered and collected in um, the congressional process of, of shaping a legislation, um, we are imagining these as a sort of popular process um, where we bring you know, our own expertise as ordinary people, as working class people, as people from social movements, um, from environmental justice communities, uh, and you know, where needed from the scientific and engineering communities um, to, uh, to put forward our own visions for what a Green New Deal should be. And the end goal of that process uh, of collecting testimony is to publish uh, sometime before the summer of 2020, a uh, standalone uh, issue of our magazine, Science for the People, um, which will, uh, you know, put, take these co this content and synthesize it and publish it as a, a people's vision for a Green New Deal. So um, this is an exciting event because it's kicking this off. And um, with that, I will just turn it over to Ashley. Okay. Thanks so much uh, to both the organizers, uh, Zach and Jamie, you've done a, a wonderful job of setting us up today and also prior to that. Um, I'm really happy to be here, excited to hear what my fellow panelists have to say. And thank you all of you for, for coming to this. I'm really looking forward to hearing your feedback as we think about um, these uh, you know, vexing technological and political issues. Um, okay, so um, I'm gonna walk us through a kind of general <laughs> introduction, which I hope will bring up some of the basic ideas. Um, which uh, fellow panelists will flesh out in various different ways. Um, I should say that I take it for granted that um, we need to keep the oil in the soil, the coal in the hole. You know, we need to move as quickly away from um, fossil fuels as possible. Um, and in addition, that nuclear power is not an option, um, either politically, you know, in terms of the possibilities of meltdown, but also economically, it's really not competitive with. Um, renewable energy at this point. Um, so uh, we really need to be thinking about transitioning our grid and some of the complex technological and political questions that come up in terms of grid transition. Okay, so presentation overview. I'll talk about 
what energy democracy means uh, very quickly. Then I'll ask questions about energy transition and then talk about the Greener New Deal. Okay, so what exactly do we mean when we talk about energy democracy? Well, most obviously it has to do with a rapid transition to 100% carbon-free renewable energy. That's not controversial. Perhaps a little bit more controversial is the argument that we should be taking control of energy resources away from the energy establishment and um, using those resources to empower communities, both literally by providing energy to them, but also economically and politically. Okay, so that means we shouldn't be relying on the kind of con eds of the world to make this transition. We need to make them public because they're a source of sort of foot dragging and lack of momentum for the transition. And this means we need to also replace our corporate fossil fuel economy with one that puts racial, social, and economic justice at the forefront of the transition. Okay, so two pretty radical claims there. On one hand, we need to replace the current uh, corporate fossil fuel economy, right? Um, that's implicit in some of what um, AOC's uh, Green New Deal um, uh, sort of plans or programmatic proposals suggest, but it's not really fleshed out. Um, are we going to nationalize Exxon and Chevron and BP, or is there some other plan? Are we just going to sort of have more renewable energy and expect those big oil companies to wither away? So lots of political questions come up there. And then the other element of this is, you know, putting racial, social, and economic justice at the forefront of the transition. And the Green New Deal has already um, raised the hackles of some climate justice and environmental justice organizations who were relatively marginalized the last time the Green New Deal conversations came up during the Obama administration. If you remember how that all went down, it was a pretty kind of corporate-based um, way of doing it and uh, conversations about putting um, frontline communities in the front ranks of um, benefiting from the transition were not foregrounded from the get-go. So we really don't want to make those mistakes. Um, and then lastly, it's a way to frame the international struggle of working people, low-income communities, and communities of color for climate justice, for a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. Um, and so, you know, that sort of reproduces some of the things that I said in the previous bullet point. But the thing to really pick up here is that it's an international struggle of working people. You know, we're not going to have a viable Green New Deal if it's just a, a national plan. It has to be an international scheme. So we have to think about um, just transition uh, all around the world and about um, forms of um, disseminating these technologies as a form of reparations, not on some competitive economic playing field. Okay, let me see if this thing's gonna move forward. <laughs> Doesn't like my bullet points. Okay, all right, so in the book I'm currently uh, struggling to complete, it's gonna be called The Energy Commons. I advanced the idea of energy commons as a kind of theoretical framework to use. Uh, to empower some of these ideas. Um, the point is that to make the shift that we need, we need to stop thinking about energy as a commodity and instead conceive of it as part of a global commons, a vital element in the great stock of air, water, plants, and collectively created cultural forms like music and language that have traditionally been regarded as the inheritance of humanity as, as a whole. <coughs> Energy needs to be thought of as a form of common wealth, since it's composed of both the natural resources, and I list some of the sort of fossil fuel ones, but also renewable ones like wind, sun, and tides, 
um, natural sources from which power is generated, and then also te technologically and socially distributed power derived from these resources. So we need to think of energy and power always as this kind of ensemble of natural resources and technology, socially mediated and politically constructed technologies. Um, and therefore, always think about these resources as um, mediated through certain conceptions of the world. Um, and I think that's why it's important to think about energy as a commons. Uh, here in, in the uh, center of empire, we've gotten used to thinking of coal, oil, and gas as privatized, right? You know, um, because they're owned by things like Exxon and BP. Of course, that's not true in the majority of the world where um, nationalized companies control most of the um, fossil fuel reserves. So globally speaking, energy has been nationalized, is kind of formulated as a form of popular um, uh, commonwealth. Um, but then when we start thinking about renewable energy, forms like wind, sun, tides, et cetera, et cetera, thinking of energy as a commons just seems to make much more common sense, right? You know, the sun shines on all of us, the wind blows everywhere. The idea that that should be controlled by a corporation rather than by all of us seems really antithetical to basic common sense about how the world works. Okay, so that, with that as a theoretical framework, let's think about energy transition. What energy transition? Um, we get folks like uh, former Vice President Al Gore talking about how progress can and will be made on renewables and climate change regardless of who's in the White House. Of course, this is being said after the election of President Trump. Um, and, you know, the huge setback that that represented for energy transition. I mean, you all know about all the nefarious behavior that um, he's uh, engaged in, so I won't go into it in detail. The important thing to see is that there's a whole kind of liberal pro-market argument about renewable energy transition. And so folks like Gore point to um, increasing uh, wind and solar installation and say, look, this is what the market is doing. It's really great. The cost of renewable energy is coming down. So we can just rely on this kind of curve and on a market-led transition. Um, and it's not just folks like Gore, it's also the International Energy Association saying something quite similar, and even the United Nations Environmental Program talking about how structural change is underway. Uh, all of this, I think, suggests the enduring power of kind of neoliberal conceptions of the world and of energy, um, which we see in uh, the important um, publication by Lord Nicholas Stern from 2006, in which he admitted that climate change is the greatest market failure the world has ever seen on the one hand, but then on the other, he went on to say that we don't have to choose between averting climate change and promoting growth and development, and talked about the market uh, and a market-led transition as the way that the world was going to be uh, saved. So I think um, the mainstream and kind of liberal commentators like Gore and even, you know, to a certain extent, um, some of the big environmental organizations are still caught in this mindset. Um, but it's worth remembering that CO2 emissions are still rising um, and that, you know, after a couple of years where the rates of carbon emissions had uh, flattened out and there was much celebration, right, much ballyhoo on the part of liberal commentators about how the rates had flattened out and that, that meant that we were on a transition, um, the rates have started to increase of carbon emissions and of course the kind of cumulative amount of carbon in the atmosphere keeps going up, right, we're around 410 parts per million now and we should be much lower. Um, and in addition it's worth remembering, oops, sorry, 
that while you can see that renewables have increased significantly um, in recent years and are projected to keep renewing, um, so has natural gas, right? And so the story of the last 10 years or so has really been about the massive takeoff of uh, fracking and the fact that we now live in Saudi America as a result of fracking. Um, and these two different sort of graphs parallel one another in many ways. So as we've had renewables growing, so we've also had uh, a lot of um, extreme forms of fossil um, energy growing. And if you look at um, the amount of renewable energy, globally speaking, it's a, a pretty small amount, right? All renewables, this is according to um, uh, the Renewable Energy um, Policy Network, all renewables are just under 20%. Um, but then when you start breaking that down, modern renewables only 10% and wind, solar, biomass, geothermal power, much lower percentage, right? Because you have to think about hydropower, another of big dams, right? And you know that I'm sure that there's been a big movement against um, dams, particularly in global south countries, um, where you know, they flood out uh, huge populations. Um, and they also have problematic impacts in terms of carbon emissions. Um, so as I said, we live in Saudi America today, and we need to remember, uh, remember that. So the question of what transition uh, is an important one. Um, this is from a recent book on uh, energy transition and on energy democracy by Denise Fairchild and Al Weinrub. You can see that they argue that we really are faced with this um, important battle between fossil capitalism on the one hand, um, and uh, forces working to avert climate disaster. Um, okay, um, and they connect it to um, empire and to a struggle for um, forms of energy which are decentralized um, and empowering everyday citizens to control energy decisions. Uh, now, my, my last unit in my presentation, a greener new deal. <laughs> Okay, we need to electrify everything, right? If we're gonna move away from fossil fuels. Um, it's absolutely essential that we green the grid, right? Which means transition it to being um, powered by 100% renewable energy rather than by coal and natural gas, which is what gives you the electricity that you use to you know, run computers and cell phones and things like that now. And um, we need to get almost everything that's not on the grid onto the grid, which means transportation, right? That's um, one of the biggest sectors that's growing in terms of um, carbon emissions in the United States. And then also heating and cooling. And, and you heard from Zach's introduction that, you know, that that's a big political struggle uh, in places like New York right now, where buildings are responsible for really kind of the lion's share of urban carbon emissions. Um, so that's the struggle we face. Um, there, there are really significant challenges to that. Right now, um, the majority of people get their power from investor-owned utilities, IOUs, appropriately enough, uh, the acronym, <laughs> like Con Ed. And in general, they're kind of dragging their feet in the transition because they have a lot, lot of sunk assets. You know, They have all of these coal-fired power plants, a lot of investment in natural gas-fired power plants, and so they don't want to make the transition quickly enough. Some are worse than others, you know, like in Florida, uh, even though it's the sunshine state, the utility there is like refusing to allow anyone to have any solar power. Um, unfortunately, you know, there is some public power in other sectors, including in uh, rural electric co-ops that were set up during the New Deal era. Sounds good, electric co-op, right? It came out of a relatively kind of radical democratic model, 
but they've been sort of taken over um, by relatively elite groups, and they're part of the problem today. You know, they have a lot of sunk assets as well in um, fossil-based uh, energy sources, and they're not making the transition quickly enough. So we see, as a result of that, that there are lots of local struggles for renewable energy um, cooperatives. Uh, we just got the state's first renew uh, renewable energy community co-op going here through the organization Uprose in Sunset Park, which is a huge triumph, but on the other hand, the first energy co-op in New York State, what the hell, it's 2019, you know, we have only 10 years or so to make this massive transition according to the IPCC, so we need to move forward much faster. Um, the uh, resolution that AOC and Markey put forward talks very much about transition, but as I already pointed out, doesn't really talk about a lot of the details um, about how this is going to happen. So a lot of this still needs to be fleshed out. But they have some good things in their proposal. This is verbatim what they say, and some good sources uh, for kind of fighting um, over. What are some of the technical challenges that we face in making everything uh, electric? Well, one of them is the architecture of the grid. Um, there are lots of different ways that the current architecture of the grid is a problem, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about this more. But you can see from the fact, um, uh, when you just look at a map of North America, that it's a fragmented grid based on a, a you know, long history. Um, three different divisions, Texas, the West, and the East, right? And we need to be able to move energy around from one part of the country to another as we go renewable. So what are we going to do in terms of the architecture of the grid? And to what extent is, you know, a kind of co-op-based, local, decentralized program for renewable energy um, going to help us think in these kinds of uh, really large grid architecture innovation um, terms? Um, another big challenge, and this is connected to the architecture of the grid, is the intermittency of modern renewables. I mean, you can see here that the sun shines in the middle of the day, whereas grid demand tends to go up, right, as solar power is diminishing. As the sun is setting, people come home from work and they want to turn on their stereos or put on their air conditioners. So there's a real problem in terms of a disconnect between intermittent renewable energy and uh, demand. What this often means is that right now, when we get renewable energy put into place, um, it always has pretty much matching backup from peaker plants that tend to be driven by natural gas at this point. Coal as well, but mainly natural gas. So anytime you hear good statistics about renewable power, you have to keep in mind that that's always mirrored by um, fossil fuels at this point. How can we get out of that? Oh, and I should also say that peaker plants tend to be placed because they're so polluting in um, working class people of color communities. And that's a big struggle that's going on right now in New York. Um, so how do we deal with that? Well, of course, the solution should be storage, you know, massive amounts of storage. But as you probably know, storage in the form of batteries right now involves lithium. Lithium has to be mined in places like Bolivia. So there's a whole kind of question about how renewable energy transition could catalyze all sorts of forms or, you know, augment all sorts of forms of problematic imperial power. Um, here you get some of the good kind of news about diminishing cost of lithium batteries, which folks like Bloomberg celebrate when they're saying we're having this market-led transition. But as I said, um, this is uh, a big challenge in all sorts of different ways. 
And then when one starts thinking globally, other big questions come up, right? Um, there are now about 2.6 billion people who have no access to clean cooking and heating facilities. 1.45 million people die prematurely each year from household air pollution due to inefficient combustion. Of course, that impacts women and children most heavily. So these questions of renewable energy have um, you know, kind of imperial and racial questions attached to them, but also gender uh, equality issues. You can see because of all of this that there's a growing demand for energy uh, in the global south, um, and that that's not going to go away, and that we need to think about the social justice elements of that. Um, but the problem is that, uh, to a certain extent, that growing demand is being satisfied by fossil fuels, with countries like China in its Belt and Road Initiative exporting coal-fired power plants. So how do we head that off? Well, it's going to have to be some kind of really massive um, transition connected to renewable power, uh, one that provides jobs um, as well as new forms of infrastructure. This is a million climate jobs proposal from South Africa that was floated a number of years ago, and it tries to think about a kind of global South country transition, I think is an interesting model to talk about. Um, and then finally, just to, to wrap up, uh, the big question of the problem of consumption, in other words, what to do about capitalism, we have to think about. Um, uh, this comes from a kind of anti-renewable energy right-wing lobby, but nonetheless, some of the points it makes are important. That is, you know, while we all want to support wind power, we should remember that wind turbines are made out of steel and that impl implies coal, right? Um, so while kind of the net impact of wind turbines might be, you know, much better than some kind of um, coal-fired power plants, nonetheless, um, they're not completely um, uh, fossil fuel um, zero. And that just goes uh, even more to say about um, uh, other imagined alternatives, right? Here you have a Tesla ad, clean air, clean conscious. If you, you know, have tens of thousands of dollars to drop on your Tesla Model S, you can feel great. Well, maybe not so much. When you think about um, the fact that your Tesla is probably powered by coal or natural gas if you're plugging it into the existing grid, and even if you're not, an electric car still takes a, a lot of carbon to manufacture, right? So the idea of just taking our existing infrastructure and switching it out um, raises lots of big questions. And I don't necessarily have any answers that I'm going to present now, but um, these are things we need to think about and discuss. Great. Thanks so much, Ashley. And uh, we're going to turn it over right to Leah now, um, who will share her remarks with us. Um, just wanted to say that's a, that was a really timely set of remarks. And um, some of you may know that there is currently a moratorium on new uh, gas connections in Westchester County. And I think it goes to show how um, a lot of these issues are playing out in real time. And so right now, we're caught in this um, challenge of, OK, well, electrification is the way to go. Um, but also, do we have the resources to make that switch? And we're seeing that a lot of our infrastructure is already oversubscribed, and, and the um, implications of that are playing out in real time. So lots to think about there. Leah, would you like to nice. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Leah, and I'm representing DSA today, uh, specifically the Eco-Socialist Working Group. So, Thank you, Ashley. That was a great presentation, and I'm glad that we got to hear about energy democracy and the ideas behind that. 
So uh, now we can talk about how we can uh, apply those ideas to direct action through long and short term goals. Uh, but before we do that, we have to do our homework. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the grid. Um, so the grid was established in the 1890s um, and it brings electricity from power plants to homes, businesses, hospitals. And um, it's 300,000 miles long. Um, and it, the technology is improving um, in the past few decades. However, uh, the grid is in crippling infrastructure. Um, if we compare the US to um, Canada or Europe, we get far more frequent blackouts uh, annually. So um, how did we get here? What happened? Um, so the, the state of New York um, gives out a parcel of land to public utilities to provide electricity to those residents. Um, so in this case, we'll be talking about Con Ed, and Con Ed will come up a lot in this panel. Um, and so um, Con Ed is then responsible for providing um, electricity to the residents. And of course, this is a monopoly. It's free of competition. So in order to put a check on Con Ed, uh, we created the PSC, which is the Public Service Commission. And they are a body of four to five appointed people. And note that they're appointed rather than elected, which makes the entire process undemocratic already. Um, and so uh, the PSC says, you know, Con Ed, like only raise your prices when absolutely necessary. And as you can guess, this doesn't always work. Um, and so what ends up happening is that uh, every three to five years, Con Ed will file, will submit to um, the PSC to increase their rates. And, uh, you know, they'll hire expensive lawyers and attorneys, which we pay for in our utility bills, um, to, to fight the case. And uh, the PSC will rubber stamp the approval, and it's business as usual, and um, our bills are and now at higher rates. Uh, so this usually happens behind closed doors, even though there are public hearings about this, uh, one public hearing, um, people don't really know about it. And, um, you know, people don't really, they're not aware of the issue and they don't know it's happening. And they don't really have time to take off a day to go to a public hearing to, you know, say no to Con Ed. So, um, the structure is already um, at odds uh, with the people and their interests. Uh, so, you know, as Ashley mentioned, Con Ed is um, investor-owned. It's an investor-owned utility, so IOUs versus POUs, publicly owned utilities. And so, uh, Con Ed is really just interested in making their shareholders happy. They're not incentivized to um, you know, cater to their customers. So, uh, you know, what, what ends up happening is that they, they are able to raise the rates and put the burden of maintaining the grid and shifting to renewables onto the customer, so the people. And, um, you know, this means that they privatize profits and socialize costs. 
So a little bit about the Green New Deal, um, the, the eco-socialist working group at DSA created seven demands to keep the, the Green New Deal accountable for a just transition. Because you know, we don't want to just wait around and twiddle our fingers and hope that the Green New Deal is equitable. We want to keep them accountable as we move forward um, with the Green New Deal. So today we'll be talking about the, the second principle, which is democratizing control over major energy systems and resources. Um, so now we're going to turn it over to Josh, who will share his thoughts with us. So thanks for your continued attention. All right, uh, so in 2017, the Consolidated Edison Company announced plans to begin installing so-called smart meters in all of their customers' homes and businesses. This falls in uh, industry-wide trend, but for the purposes of this presentation, I'm gonna focus uh, on Con Ed, which is one of the largest publicly traded corporate utility companies in the US. Uh, their smart meter plan extends well beyond just their electric utility meter, goes to their smart gas meters, smart thermostats and appliances that they're trying to get their corporate partners uh, or for you to buy from their corporate partners, and they also want to consolidate all the information and data from all of these uh, devices uh, and sell that information out uh, to their other partners. Um, so real quick, uh, I do all of this fun stuff, moving on. Um, first, first, let's review the situation Conda currently finds itself in. Conda is a publicly traded utility company uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, annual revenues 12 billion, assets 54 billion, Profitable 45 straight years. Uh, management continues to work to increase. Um, it provides combination gas, electric, steam service. Five territory, uh, territory consisting of five boroughs: New York, Westchester, Orange, and Rockland counties. New York State regulated monopoly, as you heard before, meaning it uh, covers uh, it's the sole provider of energy in that territory. It's got a you know exclusive contract uh, regulated by the New York State Public Services Commission, government body frequently criticized for being a uh, uh, regulatory capture, um, which, you know, uh, they basically just rubber stamp everything. Uh, the company has an aging uh, physical plant uh, of infrastructure on average over 50 years, sometimes up to 100 years old throughout most of its service territory, which puts it at the end of its useful uh, design life. Um, so, you know, um, I mean, this is, these are literally from Conet's archives. Uh, Con Ed is heavily in debt um, uh, with a huge deferred maintenance backlog and needs uh, massive capital investment for upgrades. Now obviously parts of the distribution systems have been replaced through regular and emergency maintenance, uh, but the bulk of the systems uh, for both electric and gas dates back to the post-war boom and before. Uh, so for the early part of its corporate life, Con Ed was flush with cash from, cash from investors, uh, was seeking uh, opportunities in the rapidly expanding industry, and as Electricity became a dominant uh, source of industrial power. It expanded out, leading uh, the charge out into the developing suburbs. Uh, later, new investments slowed, so it was able to increase its rate of profit by increasing its coverage territory by buying up uh, competitors, especially in Westchester, the Westchester uh, Public Light Corporation, Orange and Rockland, Guess, um, lots of little uh, companies here and there. Um, I mean, it was originally formed by merger of the Edison Electric Light Company and the Consolidated Gas Companies. Um, as those opportunities also became more limited, the company found itself with a fairly, uh, fairly new system and not a lot of maintenance work to be done. It was able to keep its profits up by slimming its workforce, laying off uh, construction forces and reducing the workforce to the minimum needed for day-to-day -day operations. 
Uh, management sought new technologies to increase the productivity of those few uh, remaining uh, workers through centralized and automated systems like supervisory control and data acquisition, also known as SCADA. Uh, SCADA allowed a few operators in centralized control rooms to remotely control this entire service grid, eliminating the need for local operators in every substation or to roam the service territory, making changes to the distribution system configuration manually. Uh, eventually, that too no longer worked to increase profits. Uh, so they fought regulation and won the right to deregulate the energy supply market in New York State. Uh, so what that did was that uh, unburdened them from having to own their own power plants. So Con Ed doesn't really own power plants in New York. You look at the, the, the Ravenswood generating plant across the East River, uh, the Indian Point nuclear power plant up uh, the Hudson River that you know, loves to release uh, radiation uh, and all sorts of other things into the Hudson. It's currently leaking uh, tons of strontium-90 and tritium into the Hudson every day. Uh, we're just not talking about that, but it's, it's closing, it'll be fine. Um, so, you know, uh, but, so all of those problems that, you know, the, the creation the EPA created for them got taken off their books. Um, so, you know, um, but, you know, they spun those off as subsidiaries, the subsidiaries got bought up. Um, uh, but, you know, but the deregulation also allowed Competi competition in. So you've got uh, these, you know, got bought up by foreign companies. They figured out how to get around some of the safety issues and EPA issues. And so now they're, you know, they're facing st stiff competition. Um, so let's see. Um, Let's see, so now at the same time, it's got an aging distribution system, not enough capital to make up the investment necessary to do the upgrade work, and, you know, uh, and now, uh, now where's it going to get the money? So it can go get a rate increase from the Public Service Commission. So currently, the last, last rate increase they were asking for was, uh, uh, oh, too far. Uh, they were asking for an 11% rate increase for gas customers and nearly a 6% rate increase for residential electric customers. So they're making us pay for uh, the fact that they let their system fall to pieces uh, while they looted the profits for all those years. So how does a company make major capital investments without spending major money and yet still stay profitable? One way is to reduce the burden on the existing distribution system by reducing customer consumption. Of course, that's got the double-edge uh, sort, reducing overall revenue. So this is where smart meters come in. They're primarily a way for Conant to save money and be able to change, charge customers more while also collecting data that they can sell. So now we understand how Conant got to this point. I should probably explain what a smart meter actually is. So you've got your good old-fashioned mechanical meters, mechanical gas meters, fancy new smart meters, different configurations of them. But you know the analog meters, um, you know, they had the spinning wheels, you know, physical mechanical functionality of the flow of either electricity or gas, you know, actually moved things inside to measure the, uh, the flow of, you know, uh, the consumption of energy. But someone had to come out and actually read those numbers. That's labor. Um, and sometimes they screwed up reading those numbers. That's lost revenue. Sometimes they couldn't get into the place. So, then they had to estimate. Or they had to have the homeowner or the business owner 
read that. And they screwed it up. And that's lost revenue. Um, and that it, it created all these issues. Um, so about 15, 20 years ago, those started to get replaced with ones with digital displays because they were easier for the customers and the company meter readers to actually uh, read correctly. But uh, they were also significantly harder to defraud. By the way, there's this whole little cottage industry here in the city uh, for defrauding Con Ed. But you know, <laughs> Con Ed doesn't want you to know about that. But it goes on like you would not believe. Um, so then comes these smart meters that take the digital meters to the next level. Uh, no longer does someone have to come to the physical property or even slowly drive by the property in a van with a special directional antenna. The smart utility meters directly report back your usage data to Conned servers via a wireless data mesh network in the 900 megahertz band in real time. All the smart meters in an area are connected to all the other smart meters in the area, forming a mesh of network nodes. Eventually, that provides enough hops that that it can get back to Con Ed's uh, ga data gateways to get back to, onto their network and back to the, uh, their servers. Uh, so this has many advantages for Con Ed. Um, first of which is reduced labor costs. Meter readers are no longer a job. That uh, entire large section of Con Ed's labor force will be laid off entirely. You know, that's pensions and health care and other benefits they don't have to pay. Uh, workers' comp claims they don't have to pay, things along those lines. That's a massive long-term uh, cost savings for the company. The next major advantage is more accurate billing. It reduces, reduces errors in reading data, so if you are on a variable rate energy plan, if you were overbilled in a low-cost month when your bill was estimated, instead of actually read, and then billed on an actual reading in a higher-cost month, Con Ed would frequently lose money on the deal, because the difference would be accounted in the high-cost month. As you can see here in this little table example I did, this is not based on a real numbers, I just used this as an example, but this is, this is how the math would work, works out for this. Um, obviously, if this is extrapolated across you know, the millions of people in the New York area, um, you know, hopefully, you know, Con Ed was hoping that it would balance out, but if it doesn't, you know, they're losing money, and they're not in this to lose money. Um, so now with smart meters, <coughs> they no longer <coughs> ever have to estimate your bill. They know your usage day to day, minute to minute, um, you know, as you're using it, which gives them more advantages. They can roll out real-time market rate energy cost billing in the future. Uh, instead of Con Ed buying energy from suppliers on a monthly basis and hoping that their markup covers their costs over the whole month, they can uh, bill you with their markup in real time based on what they are buying it for, reducing their risk, meaning they're always making a profit off of whatever they're selling you at that moment. They'll be able to always tack on whatever percentage onto their service rate charge to the customer to guarantee a profit and then <coughs> allows them to the potential to game the system based on playing the supply market on their data of customer hist uh, usage history over the whole service territory at the time. Um, smart metering also allows Con Ed to monitor for outages more effectively. <coughs> that seems like a good idea. State regulate, but state regulators find the company for each day that uh, each customer is without service. If the company can locate outages faster and can directly count the affected number of customers instead of estimate, they hope to reduce the cost of fines that they pay for these outages. They don't actually want to do anything about solving the outages faster, they just want to reduce the actual fine that they're paying for them. Um, while this is the advantage to all of us in the long run to, in some ways, Con Ed also has long just left deferred maintenance issues to become emergency situations, leaving it, us at all the mercy of all those cost cuttings. So what they're really just doing is uh, trying to limit the immediate financial impacts 
uh, of the symptoms of their deferred maintenance rather than actually fix the real problems. Uh, they can also use the wireless transceiver in the meter to communicate with the specially equipped thermostats and appliances and other smart, smart Internet of Things devices in your house. You know, Alexas, you know, there's, they want to make everything in your house part of the Internet of Things. Um, and they want all of that data. And Con Ed would love to get a piece of all of that data and integrate it into their data set that they can sell to whoever in Silicon Valley. So the idea behind this is to reduce the energy, the you know, public facing goal of this is to reduce the energy use of end customer equipment through what's called load shedding. With, uh, when utility demands are high, such so as electricity for cooling in summer or gas for heating in a deep freeze, load shedding is what, the process when where the customer demand in an area is too high for the available capacity, the company just starts changing your thermostats and appliances themselves to use less energy, even then turning them off completely. You didn't want that, they wanted that. Um, this is marketed as an environmental efficiency mechanism. Kind of gives these, gives great rebates for these sorts of products purchased at your local home improvement centers or through ConEd's own web portal to their corporate partners. ConEd, however, doesn't necessarily know each customer's specific reasons for their settings, such as health issues, special medical equipment, or specific issues with their home, nor does it really care. Um, ConEd doesn't really want to reduce your overall use the rest of the time if possible, so the green marketing aspects of the product advertising are frankly bullshit. They make their money by selling you energy to use. Remotely turning off your energy use when you're not around doesn't benefit them unless their distribution capacity is otherwise strained. Um, it wants to run its distribution system with the least amount of upgrade capital investment possible, and if that means dumping some customers off the system temporarily in an underserved area, so be it. So all this applies to the natural gas meters and appliances the same as it does the electric ones. Um, let's see. Uh, so, uh, you know, Conneds, you know, they want to, you know, they don't actually know where their gas system is leaking. Um, they, you know, they know that gas goes in. They have a rough idea how much gas comes out. But without accurate, truly accurate systems day to day, such as, you know, with smart metering gets them, they don't really know. Um, so that, uh, that kind of causes problems because the gas gets into things and it blows things up and it kills people on a regular basis. Um, so, you know, um, this, these are two, you know, more recent examples. The uh, East Harlem gas explosion killed eight people. East Village gas explosion uh, killed two people. These are both ongoing leaks you know, Con Ed, Con Ed killed people. Um, Con Ed admitted killing people in court um, and paid huge fines. Um, so, uh, as part of the settlements for that, Con Ed gas detectors in homes connected to the smart meters. Um, these seem like a great idea. Uh, if activated, it'll provide an audible alarm signal, verbal evacuation notice, also sends an alert to Conant's control room via the smart meter, Conant gets their emergency gas repair crews and the local fire department out to investigate. Sounds great. The idea is that if any gas leaks associated with Conant's part of your building's gas system, of course, everything past their meter is not their problem. That's your, the building owner's problem. Um, the, they'll be notified and be able to make the best effort to remediate the problem before they kill, maim, or destroy property. If the building blows up because of a gas leak elsewhere in the building, it's not Con Ed's problem, and having the gas leak detector adjacent to their equipment reduces their liability. 
doesn't fix the problem of their you know, junk uh, equipment and leaky gas system, it just reduces their liability. These detectors, <coughs> these detectors aren't practical for them without the smart meters. If they really cared about helping people, they would put these available on the shelves in home improvement stores so that you could go and buy them and put them all over your house just like smoke detectors. Um, so uh, one of the reasons kind of keeps having problems with buildings blowing up is that landlords don't want tenants calling Con Ed to complain about gas leaks. Because if Con Ed shows up, finds leaky pipes, Con Ed shuts off the gas. Um, then the landlords got to get some you know, licensed plumber in to fix the plumbing. Um, then Con Ed's got to come out and reinspect, and it's a whole long thing, and it costs a lot of money. In the meantime, the gas is off. There's no heat, there's no hot water, there's no gas for cooking or anything, and the building owner is getting screamed at by tenants. So instead, the Building owners want to take care of themselves on the side with their unlicensed buddy who will do it for free, you know, on the cheap, late at night, you know, maybe help them steal a little gas from Con Ed, you know. So, you know, these, you know, these meters are, of course, you know, protected against tampering so that, you know, when uh, these building owners uh, don't want it calling Con Ed, it will still call Con Ed. Um, because Gas leaks are also one of the number one ways that Con Ed finds revenue theft. Okay. Um, so, uh, Carnegie, you know, Carnegie Deli closed because revenue theft uh, from Con Ed. Um, war on drugs. More revenue theft. Uh, marijuana grow houses. They need energy. They track the energy being used by these. Um, and they, you know, so they steal and they blow up. Um, so last part about smart meters is obviously the data gets collected. You know, they're tracking, but those meters are also tracking your phones. They are tracking, they, you know, the homeowner's phone. Anyone who comes in and out of there, it's not just you know they want all of the data. You you know you go visit your friend. Are you consenting to Con Ed collecting your data? No, Con Ed's going to collect it anyway. Um, so, you know, think about that. So if you're currently a uh, building owner, uh, you can opt out. Uh, I'll put this up later after the discussion so you can actually see this information. Um, but you, you know, uh, you can opt out. It's very difficult. You'll pay through the nose to do so. Uh, so what if, uh, we'll get more into that probably discussion. I gotta cut it for time. Um, so if the utility were being run for profit, not being run for profit, you know, we could, we could do a lot more, but uh, you know, there's the New York Power Authority here in New York, which is a public utility. It has bailed out the private utilities numerous times. We could take over Con Ed tomorrow, and it would be the infrastructures in place. So, uh, you know. Okay, hi everyone. Thanks for having me, and thanks for organizing the panel, Jamie and Zach. Um, it's been great to hear what all the other panelists have talked about. So. Um, I will start by saying that, as we've all heard already, um, that uh, the energy sector is really driven by greed and profit making, um, and it really prioritizes profit over people and the earth. Um, and that the industry extracts natural resources and raw materials from uh, the environment, and it exploits the earth to the limit of what can actually what it can actually sustain for human life and other life forms as we know it now. Um, and this practice is reflective of the long history of 
imperialism and colonialism um, that we've lived in, um, where resources were extracted and exploited to enrich certain institutions and people, um, and usually those that are outside of the land and the region that, um, that they're extracting from. Um, these practices are then justified by racism, by white supremacy, by lots of other oppressions. And these oppressions um, that come at us and that then we internalize are used and manipulated to further divide, separate, and conquer us. Um, if that weren't the case, we would all have figured out to come together and actually fight against the real enemy, um, the real common enemy that's creating the conditions of exploitation and extraction. Um, so capitalism relies on us being divided and the, it relies on these oppressions to maintain and ensure that it functions and sustains itself. Um, and it keeps us in place where instead of fighting against the system, we're left fighting and destroying each other for crumbs. And we deserve more than crumbs. So um, I'm gonna, so the energy sector, the model of the energy sector today is one that, that sort of plays off of this. Um, so I work with a project called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, and we're an international trade union network fighting for public ownership and democratic control over the energy sector. We're 70 unions as of a couple days ago, and 23 countries. Um, and um, these unions support a radical position on energy democracy. Um, I'm gonna go through some of um, the presentation pretty quickly. There's a lot of information, and um, but you can find a lot of this more in depth through our working papers um, that you can find online, and I'm happy to talk with you more later. Um, and in particular, working papers number 9, 10, and 11 carry a lot of this information, and one of the authors is here, Sean Sweeney, um, and my other uh, colleague, John Treat, um, have written those three papers um, and really go into some depth about these issues. So I'm gonna focus mostly on Europe, which a lot of the, um, the papers do, because that's where large-scale implementation of these climate policies have taken place for the last uh, many, many years. Um, so, let's see. Oh, picture of the working papers. Um, so climate policy has two key goals. One is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and also, um, and carbon dioxide in particular, but also say methane, which is really connected to fracked gas. Um, and the other is to transition into a renewable energy um, future, which is um, particularly focused on solar and wind power right now. Um, so where are we? So business as usual in this graphic shows takes, oops. Uh, business as usual takes us to 4.2 degrees, um, which is way higher than we can be. Um, our goal is to be at 1.5. So, um, and the national proposals, uh, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's it automatic timer. Oh, every time you touch it, I think. Yeah, because it's not doing, it's not on the timer, it's just every okay. time you touch the screen. Okay, I got it. I should not use my paper to. <laughs> this is too advanced for me. Um, um, so we're aiming for 1.5, but the national proposals um, in the Paris Agreement would actually take us to 3.3, which is actually not um, enough. Uh, it doesn't meet the goals that we really need to get to to avoid catastrophic climate change. Okay, so, oh, that, I didn't... Okay, um, so what we're seeing in some of these trends right now is that energy consumption is rising. Um, fossil fuel use is actually still rising also. 
Greenhouse gas emissions rose again in 2018, and we are very far from the targets um, that we need to get to to avoid climate catastrophe. Um, uh, this is just a, a graph showing that world consumption is in fact increasing. You see coal and oil are some of the biggest fossil fuels that are being used. Natural gas is also um, a, a close third. And in this graph you see also the greenhouse, um, carbon dioxide emissions are increasing and you can see that the United States in light blue is the, the country that has emitted the steadiest, most um, amount of carbon dioxide over the last many decades. Um, Ashley used a similar um, graphic. This is um, one that specifically talks about electric electricity production and at the end of 2017, even though we hear a lot of people talking about the increase of renewable energy these days, it is increasing but in very small increments and if you look at the entire picture you see that 73% um, is actually non-renewable electricity, 26.5% is the renewable electricity, electricity, but a lot of that's hydropower and Ashley already pointed out a lot of the problems of hydropower and we're not really expanding at the, you know, we're not trying to expand that industry in the ways we are with wind and solar which are a very small amount um, adding up to really 7.7% of the total which is a, a very far cry from where we need to be. Um, so in terms of policy context and history, we're getting a green growth narrative, right? We can, we can keep growing and we can also um, curb climate crisis. So the green growth narrative is really anchored in two main market mechanisms. The first one is carbon pricing. It's a tax, it's also called emissions trading schemes, and it's a catchy phrase, polluter pays. It sounds very progressive, right, but it's actually not. And I'll go into that a little bit later. Um, uh, there's also uh, this incentives process or incentives model to actually get people to invest in renewable energy and it's really through subsidies and one is a freedom tariff and the other is a competitive bidding process. Um, in terms of carbon pricing, um, in 2019 it was uh, I think 19.6% of global emissions um, that, sorry, 19.6% um, of programs to there are 19.6 programs to implement a price on carbon, but not all of those programs have been implemented yet. And in 2017, we see that only 15% of the world's carbon emissions actually has a price on it. Um, and the pricing is very, very low, way too low to actually meet where we need to be in terms of actually having an impact on reducing emissions. Um, Moving on to subsidies. Oh, actually, one more thing I want to say about the carbon tax is um, I was talking with someone who um, is from a, a big mainstream NGO, and his argument to me for carbon taxing is that you know you can tax the polluting companies and generate a revenue. Then the cost gets passed down to the consumer through electricity bills or at the pump. But then, um, and meanwhile, the emissions aren't really impacted. But then you can convene a task force and you can bring frontline communities on board of that task force and make a decision on how you want the other money to be spent. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, that's why you want a carbon tax that doesn't work with, for climate policy, but um, you want to build an illusion for people that they have some kind of decision-making um, uh, um, agency in the process, that it's like totally backwards. And a lot of this is, it is, it's just like, it's, it's absurd. <laughs> um, and this is not a real solution. It's a false solution that gets advertised to us as a, as a promising possibility of how to make change. 
So when we look at FITs, feed-in tariffs, um, who's actually paying for this? <laughs> who's actually paying for this? So I kind of highlighted here, you have 40 billion euros of the interventions that are paid directly by energy consumers in the form of levies. So that's from, after three years of, um, of having implemented um, feed-in tariffs, the European Commission, Commission came out with a report. And this is what they found. So that means um, energy consumers are getting taxed on their electricity bills to pay the pay for profit that the private industries for renewable energy get to pocket. Um, in Germany, which was one of the pioneering countries in 1991 that um, implemented a, a feed-in tariff, they found that 25% of electricity bills for non-commercial customers were to pay the 21.4 billion euros in FIT costs. And then in 2016, they found that Germany spent, um, of the 25 billion euros that they spent, 23 billion euros were passed directly on to consumers through electricity bills. So the consumers are actually paying and footing this bill. Um, so realizing this, they decided to shift the policy to from FITs to competitive bidding. I'm not going to go into all of what this means, but basically um, electric, uh, renewable energy was then exposed to a competitive electricity market. Um, and how they dealt with this was developing public-private partnerships between renewable energy companies and governments. And um, they came to agreements through these contracts called power purchase agreements, which then ended up really protecting those renewable energy companies from losing profits by guaranteeing them a certain amount of money that they would get paid for their energy. So the government was purchasing their energy and, and guaranteeing a price for that energy. Um, and lots of costs got built into that. Um, and, um, and what ended up happening was um, it, it basically drove the cost of renewable energy down and um, people didn't want to invest in that anymore. And so you can see um, in, in Europe there was really a tanking of new energy investment in, a uh, new investment in clean energy. So you can see it really dropping. Um, and then globally you can see that the, the investment has leveled off here. Um, and really what it needs to be doing is doing a, a steep incline of renewable energy investment, which it, it's not anymore. And so when you see the headlines of, oh, renewable energies are, you know, renewable energy is really um, going up and up and up and, and, and we're really going to transition, that's actually not happening. Um, let's see. So you have these, uh, you know, similar to what Ashley um, showed us with, with, um, with some of these um, pro-market, pro-market uh, economists saying, oh my goodness. This isn't working. Um, I had no idea that so little progress had been made until I looked at these data. And so this is the uh, uh, chief economist, economist at BP. Um, you have someone from the International Energy Agency um, saying such a decline in global investment for renewables and energy efficiency combined is worrying. Okay, so that's that's not good. <laughs> Um, so some of the lessons we're learning here is that carbon pricing is not working as an emissions reduction policy. Renewables do not yield high returns in the competitive electricity market. Investors do not want to invest in renewable energy because costs are falling. And with this model, all energy investments are saturated in risk. So you have a, a whole market that's now um, a lot more risky. So wake up, there is no energy transition happening. <laughs>
Um, so, we propose um, uh, public ownership of energy. And what this means is you have more just situation. You have, a, you, have justice, you have a situation, a model that can advance justice. You have the possibility of democratic control because you're no longer beholden to or reacting to the chaos of market-based, profit-driven models um, and goals. And you can set up democratically controlled decision-making bodies that are representative of the constituencies that we want to have. Frontline communities, immigrant communities, indigenous communities, people of color, women, young people. And that actually helps to challenge the history um, of oppression that we live in. It, it challenges the institutions um, that have uh, systemic um, oppression built into them. And uh, this is a way to really, you know, um, fight against uh, a colonial and imperialist system that we've sort of been indoctrinated with for so long. Um, it also allows control over decisions regarding energy options, uh, distribution, use, cost setting, integration, um, integrating smaller uh, community-based energy grids. It also creates, as uh, others have talked about, a public goods approach. Energy is no longer a commodity. It becomes um, a common good and we all have access to it like it used to be. Um, it also offers cost savings. It's cheaper. Um, you're no longer guaranteeing a profit, so that's not a concern. That's off the table. It also lowers borrowing costs, because if you have a publicly owned entity, um, the borrowing costs are much lower in comparison to the, pro the private sector. And that's been a major component of private sector renewables, the, the cost of borrowing to, to build large projects. Um, and then lastly, oh, and also, um, you are getting lower rates for the consumer, which is great, um, obviously. Um, and then lastly, you can meet climate goals because the deployment of renewable energy is much faster and can be at scale. Um, so what is the trade union response to this? Well, public ownership came from um, a, a trade, the, the message of public ownership and the fact that the public sector needs to lead came out of a trade union meeting. Um, and um, trade unions agreed to, you know, they committed to taking on the complex challenges and the liberating opportunities of developing a concrete um, public ownership program um, that can help actually re-energize the labor movement. So it's a sort of a win-win situation, right? Um, and I'll just say quickly, in South Africa, um, oops, um, one of the trade union federations that are part of Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, um, IFSAFTU, and in their founding statement, they say, we shall mobilize workers to oppose ESCOM, which is their public, um, their public utilities. Um, ESCOM's planned closure of five coal-powered power stations, um, which could produce 30 to 40,000 job losses. Fight the partial privatization of ESCOM by involving independent power producers step up the campaign against nuclear energy and develop a position to transition to socially owned renewable energy. Um, and I'll, let me just break this down real quick before I end. Um, that um, the public utilities is in disrepair, corruption, mismanagement. Um, and, and South Africa is a country that has lived through, you know, um, and been deeply impacted by um, uh, colonial history. And out of that came a very disenfranchised black working class and also the, um, national, the African National Congress, which is the governing body. Um, and out of that um, also came the conditions to set this, this whole thing up. Um, 
But ESCOM is a publicly owned utility, and in 2017, the ANC announced that they were going to close these five coal power stations and um, bring on a renewable energy program. What that meant was public, I mean, private renewable energy companies getting um, subsidized. Um, and, um, and at the expense of the shutdown of five coal power plants, where those coal power plants are located, the economies are built around those power plants existing. So it's not just 30 to 40,000 job, direct job losses. It's, hun it's 100,000 job losses, because you have whole indus like industries in those provinces built up around those coal fire plants. And then they want to bring in a privatized renewable energy sector. Um, and, and a lot of that is actually um, uh, uh, global investment, foreign investment. 25.8% of those investments are foreign, and the United States is the largest source of foreign direct investment in those projects. Um, and so you see the, the reflection of imperialist practice um, of extracting resources from South Africa, again, by the US and other places, that just perpetuates this, this notion. So um, I guess I'll end by saying, um, you know, if we want to, if we want to end climate change, we really need to transform the system because the system will keep figuring out how to um, shift and change and swallow up our efforts. And, um, and in the, maybe the Q&A, I can talk a little bit about um, how some of the developments um, in, in Europe have emerged around um, local ownership of, of energy. But, um, but we really need to transform a system. And it's not going to be simple, and it's not going to be fast. But it's something that we can do. And you know, join, the, <laughs> join the public <laughs> power campaign. And you know, I, mean, I think the things that everybody has said is really inspiring. So thank you.